0: Now, really, just one more question um, because I think – I can't let you go without us answering the cynical so what question that that you get when you talk about this case. Um, There is no enforcement procedures other than the weight of international opinion, and the argument has been made, uh, including I believe in the last couple days on the front page of the New York Times that uh, great powers don't necessarily listen – to courts, uh, and just as as China is ignoring this ruling, the U.S. and Russia and others have have of doing the same. And the example that gets cited, both here and in Beijing, is often the the 1986 U.S. Nicaragua I.C.J. decision, to which you were the one of Nicaragua's lawyers. So, uh, do people have that? You've just given away
1: my right? age.
0: Well, <laughs> as, <okay>. as <laughs> the <laughs> youngest member of the Nicaraguan legal team, well, let, right. let me let me frame it like this, and perhaps okay. it's easier for you just to tell me if I'm completely off base. Right. The argument often made is U.S. didn't never complied with, with the ICJ decision, uh, so who is it to tell China to comply? But perhaps the counter argument is the U.S. walked away from the proceedings after after uh, the ICJ found jurisdiction. However, the weight of international opinion and repeated U.N. votes and other uh, embarrassments was such that the U.S. Congress defunded uh, support for the Contra rebels in 88, which was one of the requirements of the ruling. Mm -hmm. The Bush administration lifted the trade embargo in 1990, which was another requirement of the ruling. Uh, The only thing that never happened was a payment of compensation, but instead the Bush administration held out a large aid package in exchange for Nicaragua dropping the case, which is, of course, cynical and self-serving, but it's also exactly the kind of political accommodation that even great powers make in order to comply with a ruling without ever admitting that they're complying with a ruling. Is that a fair assessment as somebody who watched it blow by blow?
1: Well, let me – let me uh, answer your question this way. The, in the vast, vast majority of interstate cases that are tried before international courts and arbitral tribunals, states comply with the award or judgment, even when they're unhappy with it. The cases where states don't comply are so few and far between that we call them exceptions. There are some exceptions. I'll come back to the one you mentioned in a moment, but they are exceptional. The vast, overwhelming majority of times, states comply even though international courts and tribunals don't have coercive powers. They can't send the sheriff to knock on your door and put you in handcuffs if you don't comply. Why is that? Why do states do this if there's no coercive power making them do it? And I submit there are a number of reasons for this. One, of course, is, as you've mentioned, reputational damage, image damage, and as a result, loss of prestige and loss of influence with other states when you, in in effect, declare yourself an international outlaw, a state that doesn't care for or respect international law. It's a very, very heavy price to pay. And it's not just public relations. It translates into your ability to influence other members of the international community. Second, every state has a strong interest in the existence, the maintenance, and to some degree the strengthening of an international rules-based order. Why? Because without one, there's chaos. Without one, there's no predictability. Without one, there is permanent insecurity, instability, and a greater threat than there is now of armed conflict. Take a look at what China has said. Every time they have made a statement about this case, they have declared that what they have done is consistent with international law. They have attempted to justify everything they have done on the basis of international law. Now, if they don't care about international law, if they don't care about a rules-based international order, why are they attempting to justify their conduct in legal terms? Because China, too, has a stake in a rules-based international order. And China, too, (coughs) pardon me, cares about how it's perceived by the international community. Now, as the arbitral tribunal found, their legal arguments are indefensible. They're wrong. But my point is not that, whether China is right or wrong, but China has shown that it cares. It cares enough to try to defend what it has done on the basis of international law. Now, in this case, there are particular reasons why I believe that the award eventually not immediately, but eventually will be complied with or substantially complied with. Again, it gets back to the fact that states act in their own best interests. That's what they do. They determine what their best interests are and then they attempt to uh, conform their behavior to the achievement of those objectives. What will happen now as a result of this award As I've said, it's not just the Philippines that has won. It's Vietnam, Malaysia, Indonesia, and all of the other states have won from this award. What they have won is a declaration, an understanding, absolute clarity that the nine-dash line is unlawful. If it's unlawful, as applied against the Philippines, it has to be unlawful, as applied against Vietnam. These states now know more than they ever knew before because it has now been confirmed by a eminent arbitral tribunal unanimously that they are each entitled to a 200-mile exclusive economic zone and continental shelf off of their coasts and that China's claim to 85 or 90% of their exclusive economic zones and continental shelves is invalid, unlawful, unenforceable. Those states, I think, can be expected to pursue their own best interests and to demand that China accept and recognize their rights so what is developing is a situation where China is looking across the South China Sea at all of its neighbors united against it not in in a physical or military sense but in the sense of having common interest and a common position in sustaining what is theirs a 200-mile exclusive economic zone, and continental shelf. The nine-dash line is inconsistent with that, and it's illegal, whereas their legal claims are valid and correct. What happens next? China is faced with a choice. As I've said earlier, it has the physical power to impose its will by force on all of its neighbors if that's what it chooses to do the consequence of that will be permanent hostility with all of its neighbors and an inherently unstable insecure situation which makes exploitation of the resources nearly impossible and certainly very risky enjoyment of the benefits of the South China Sea is minimal if you have a situation, a permanent situation of heightened instability and tension with the risk of armed conflict. Now, what's the alternative for China? The alternative is to negotiate, which they said they're willing to do, to negotiate with their neighbors on the basis of equality in which the the legitimate rights and interests of all states are ultimately recognized and respected, including those of China. Now, any such agreement that could possibly emerge would have to reflect in whole or in large part the findings of this arbitral tribunal. And I think the Chinese leadership is smart. Nobody should underestimate them. And China, as we all know, looks to the long term they're not motivated by short-term gains. They're not looking at the at how the stock market is going to do over the next quarter. They wisely take a long-term view. I think they're very capable people. They will have a clear understanding of what China's best interests are. They will pursue them, and that means that they will pursue a settlement that everybody can accept. Now... I guess it's only fitting that I close where I began my career, which is Nicaragua versus, at least my career as an international lawyer, Nicaragua versus United States. The United States paid a terrible price internationally for walking out of that case midway through it. The United States did appear to contest Nicaragua's request for provisional measures. The United States did appear to contest the Nicaragua's arguments that the court had jurisdiction over its claims. As I recall, the United States filed written pleadings exceeding 1,000 pages, and they had almost an army of lawyers in the ICJ for the hearings on jurisdiction. Um, I think the United States made the unwise and and really harmful to itself decision after it lost on jurisdiction uh, to walk out Uh, of the court Uh, it it was as an American I really felt ashamed uh, because when I was growing up when I was studying law the United States was a pillar of the international legal order the United States wisely and justly was the greatest sponsor of the establishment of the International Court of Justice after World War II, and the United States fully supported the court and its authority uh, by acceptance of the court's jurisdiction, generally, by its appearance in prior cases, by its compliance in prior rulings. The United States used the court effectively against Iran in the diplomatic hostages case in the 1980s and the United States was so effective in invoking international law against Iran and using the court to generate strong world opinion on its behalf that the court's judgment in favor of the United States and against Iran was a factor was a factor in ultimately uh, bringing about the settlement of that extremely important issue. In fact, one of the main intermediaries in the government of Algeria that acted to help facilitate the agreement between the United States and Iran in the 1980s, the then Attorney General, Mohammed Bajawi, later was elected as a judge of the International Court of Justice and was one of those, ironically, who sat on the court during the Nicaragua case. So when the Reagan administration pulled the United States out of the International Court of Justice, the United States was, in effect, tearing down a temple that it had helped to construct and maintain. And I've seen, over the last 30 years, a number of unfortunate examples of my country failing to live up to its own high standards and noble ideals the war in iraq for example guantanamo now that's not the whole story about the united states uh, the united states has done much to strengthen the international legal order during the last 30 years. But the contradictory behavior of the United States, contradictory to the rule of law, which began with its withdrawal from the court, unfortunately did not end there. There are a number of other unfortunate examples, specifically the ones I've mentioned. And frankly, the failure of the United States Congress to ratify the Law of the Sea Convention is another shameful example of the United States acting contrary to its own best interests, contrary to its interests in strengthening the rule of law internationally. Uh, It's ironic because every president of the United States since Reagan, every secretary of state, every Secretary of Defense save one and every chairman of the US Armed Forces, chairman of the, of the uh, Joint Chiefs of Staff has supported ratification of the Law of the Sea Convention and yet it doesn't get done. Now this may be a disgrace but it's no excuse for China. China Ratified the convention. It became a party to it in 1996. The United States was not a party then. China did not become a party because the United States was already there, because it wasn't. China did not remain a party of the Law of the Sea Convention for the last 20 years because the United States was in the room, because the United States was never there. China accepted these obligations and the rights that come with being a party to the convention independently of the United States. It's bound by its obligations under the treaty that it voluntarily ratified in a situation where the United States was not there. It can't use the absence of the United States now from the convention to say that somehow it doesn't have to comply with the obligations it accepted. I might go further than this, as you'll see from the award, China was one of the principal architects of the Law of the Sea Convention in the first place. This came into force in 1982. The People's Republic of China had been the government of China for over 30 years. It was the People's Republic of China that represented China, that was China, during The negotiations, the 11 years of negotiations that led up to the Law of the Sea Convention. The Law of the Sea Convention is not some Western uh, innovation that was imposed on the rest of the world. The Law of the Sea Convention was universally crafted. China was a major player, as were most of the developing countries of the world. And their interests were enshrined in it. In fact, it it was the interests of the developing countries of the world that led to the agreement on a 200-mile exclusive economic zone and continental shelf. So this is not some uh, Western imposition or colonial imposition on China or anybody else. This is a convention that was universally negotiated, uh, universally promoted, and accepted by China, which was one of the main architects. To say that somehow they don't have to comply with their legal obligations under this convention because the United States never became a party. Frankly, it is, it, it is beneath them. Now, to conclude, notwithstanding the withdrawal from the proceedings by the United States, at the merits phase of the Nicaragua case. As you rightly point out, the United States was ultimately compelled to bring itself into substantial compliance with the judgment of the ICJ. In the first place, in large part, because of the ICJ's judgment against the United States, the United States Congress voted in 1988 to terminate military aid to the contras. By that time, the United States had already abandoned uh, its effort to mine Nicaragua's harbors and eventually, as you said, the uh, trade embargo on Nicaragua was, was lifted. But against the will of the Reagan administration, the United States Congress voted to terminate the main element of the United States is illegal policy against Nicaragua. I was around then, in fact, I was lobbying for Nicaragua to help defeat Contra-Aid. I worked very closely with the Democratic leadership in the Congress, particularly the Speaker of the House, Jim Wright, and I know from my personal experience that it was the judgment of the court that helped make the difference. Not that every member who voted against Contra-Aid did so because of the ICJ's judgment. That's not the case. But enough of those who were uncertain about what the right vote would be were persuaded to vote against the aid because it was found to be in violation of international law by the ICJ to give the opponents of Contra a majority. And that brought the United States into substantial compliance. Now, in fact, the United States was not in violation, was never in violation of any order in regard to payment of compensation. Because in the International Court of Justice, the compensation phase of the case comes after the judgment on the merits, on liability on responsibility. Uh, Nicaragua won on establishing the responsibility of the United States for violating the most fundamental principles of international law. Then the court proceeded to initiate a phase on compensation. It never reached a judgment on compensation because a settlement was reached between Nicaragua and the United States. So the United States was not never Uh, in violation of any order in regard to compensation because there never was such an order. The case was settled before it got to that point. So um, it it may have been a complicated process but in the end the United States uh, can be said to have complied uh, substantially if not entirely with the judgment in the Nicaragua case again China would be mistaken to cite that as an example uh, to follow. Um, it's never a good idea to follow somebody else's bad example.
0: <laughs> All right, Paul. Well, thank you very much for taking the time to sit down with us, especially at the end of, of what I'm sure is uh, an exhausting week uh, of, of the ruling and media appearances that followed.
1: It's exhausting, but it, it's good exhausting, not <laughs> bad exhausting. Right, thanks very much. <laughs>